that energy is great, but also calm down. You can't come into an environment that's already established and come in and usurp the way things are done. Watch, listen. I always recommend that people, before they try to put the big flag in the ground, watch the natives, see how they operate. It's anthropology. What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Vanessa Toro, who is currently in Atlanta, the Group Strategy Director at Digitas North America. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you. So excited to be here. We're going to talk about the reality of the industry today, and especially the reality as people coming into the industry, how they see that reality, how they see the industry and what they're nervous about. Because both of us uh, talk quite a bit to, to students contemplating how to get in. And the questions that they're asking are probably different to some of the questions that we would have contemplated when, when we were starting out. So that's where we're going to start. Recently, you spoke with a group at, uh, at VCU Brand Center, which is a very prestigious uh, place to learn advertising strategy, creative, et cetera, in the US. What did you take away from your interaction with the students? Like many opportunities when speaking with young people, I was galvanized and encouraged by how thoughtful they were. They had the most incredible questions, probing, thoughtful questions, which was really heartening. On the other hand, Many of their questions had to do with the sort of the dark side of the agency world and advertising. So as opposed to asking, you know, what's the day to day like, or what's the most exciting part of your job? A lot of the questions and energy centered on how do you extricate yourself from a toxic environment? How do you assert that you're very uncomfortable working on a certain brand or category for your personal beliefs. Can you do that? Is that something that you need to graduate to? So it was a very sobering conversation. I think both ways, they definitely heard my truth bombs, but I too was a bit surprised with what was on their mind they get to see a lot of incredible alumni work. So many speakers come in with these beautiful scissor wheels of everything they've made and what's gotten them famous. And then I show up not wanting to talk about work, but wanting to talk about the reality of this industry and why they are so needed right now. And that conversation affirmed for me that, yes, we need them. Also, they are very willing participants. They are ready to take it on. And that gave me a lot of heart, particularly after hearing all of their concerns about, you know, bad agency culture when they haven't even stepped into that world yet. Mm -hmm. Just out of, out of curiosity, you are obviously, when you're talking to students at VCU, you're, you're talking to people who want to get into advertising and to even be at VCU. I mean, I, could, I don't think I could have afforded that when I was a kid. Uh, most people I know in Australia, in the advertising scene in Australia, didn't study advertising and to study at VCU for a year or two, it's tens of thousands of dollars, right? Why did you feel that you wanted to go and talk to people who are spending 
tens of thousands of dollars to get into the industry about why they're needed in the industry? I did ask before agreeing regarding the makeup of the student body. So if it is a highly privileged all white class that is certainly not going to struggle, is not going to feel isolated or tokenized, probably I would have had a very different conversation. They've put a lot of effort and energy into working on what we all need to work on, which is bringing different people and different mindsets into the fold. So part of what got me excited about it was just seeing the makeup of the class and knowing that there are people there that likely feel like they don't belong there. They are so fortunate to, to attend. I too would never have been able to participate. And sure, they, they have a level of privilege from being able to attend such a prestigious organization. But at the same time, minorities, whether racial, ethnic, ability, there's always a few, right? <laughs> there, there's always a few that break those barriers. But to me, it was important to acknowledge how necessary they are and I also needed for white people to hear that. It's equally important that everyone understands the value of people who are part of different cultures, subcultures, and the unique perspectives everyone brings. For me, I was simply heartened by the diversity of the group this year. Mm-hmm. And that, that gave me a lot more interest than simply talking to people who you know, likely have access to more things than, you know, certainly I did. Mm-hmm. Did you feel the questions that they were asking you about the dark side of the industry were questions that people in your team might not think about? You know, what do you think it's a, a shift in generations that are looking for their values to come to life in the work they do in a way that perhaps previous generations didn't contemplate, didn't have to contemplate, weren't able to contemplate? Absolutely. The current atmosphere is certainly encouraging unapologetic you, unapologetic you-ness. And what I found is people are really about that. They really are asking the tough questions. They want to get it right. And a lot of them were poised and excited to go in somewhere and radically change it. What I had to remind them of is it it doesn't work that way. There's an existing culture. You need to observe the natives. Yes, I feel like these kids are not here to play. Potentially to their own detriment, depending on how they go about it. But they are super emboldened. They have taken what they see happening in greater culture, the stances people are taking, the promises that agencies are making, and they just want to hold them to it. So they're coming in already with a notion of accountability and seeing if these agencies, you know, don't just talk about it, but are about it. And that's a really powerful notion that an entire cohort, an entire new class is leaving and entering the space with that mindset. It it makes me hopeful. 
Yeah, I, look, that's a powerful phrase. The kids are not here to play. And yet when they're asking you these questions, are they asking you these questions with a sense of, of nervousness and trepidation or are they kind of in the mode of interrogating because they want to get to the truth and they want to live this career in a way that really feels aligned with them? You know, what, what's the, the emotion in the questions when they're asking you about the dark side of, of the industry? Both. There were definitely individuals who are unsure about their place or exactly what they can manage to affect until they reach the higher echelons. And then there were a lot of people that overtly said, these agencies are doing the bare minimum and I will have no part of it. So it was a very interesting dynamic. There's just a a palpable energy with these kids I don't know if I should call them kids, with these young adults. They, they are already intent on making it better. How many industries do people go into having a plan to upend it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most careers you get into because they align to your spirit or whatever, you need a job and you're just going to do it. It's just very fascinating how invested they are in making sure that these companies align to their values? How can they ascertain that? Some of the questions were around, how can you tell if these agencies really are walking the walk? Because mm-hmm. they're afraid of getting in a space and then learning, oopsie, just another you know, set of lip service. Yeah. So I feel like this group is gonna hold people accountable. And at the same time, I have a concern because I want these people in the industry but will they just leave it? <laughs> what are the specific topics that come up with the idea of accountability? What, what do they want to hold this industry accountable to as they come into it? They want to see themselves reflected in leadership. It is a common practice to go look at the leadership page of any agency before making a decision. What, what do those pictures look like? There is a... How do you handle X, Y, Z? They had very specific examples of either being asked to work on things that they philosophically don't align with. How do they separate that? Do they separate it? There was a a very uncompromising nature to it, which again, can be great or can make you jump ship. (laughs) I feel like the, the climate the the current zeitgeist of show up as your full self, whether or not people feel that is attainable has definitely permeated and seeped into the minds of this generation. They really buy into that. They want that. And I feel like they're going to push for it to the point, you know, that perhaps it will have larger ramifications and we can all benefit from it. Yeah. Bringing your whole self, your full self to work, I like it and I think it's a bit of a misdirection because (laughs) not to get too weird too soon. I mean, how well do we really know ourselves and what our full selves are? Because our full selves, that that encapsulates like things we do that are nice and also things we do that are not nice. So to talk about bringing your full self to work, I mean, all of us, we're animals. (laughs) You know, we're not all nice. 
So I think that is a beautiful sentiment, but it can be a bit of a misdirection. Um, and also I think part of the, the subtext to that is that work is a place where you can be one thing and potentially everything in a way that sometimes we look to certain relationships like a romantic relationship and try to be everything in the one relationship and solve all our problems and needs in the one relationship. I think there can be an overpromise with some of this language that can get people to see the corporation as something that it really isn't. And that then the leadership and HR play into that. And that can also accompany language like we're a family. You're not. You know, a company is not a family. You can feel family-like, but it's not. And so I think some of these ideas are useful in many ways, but they can overreach in ways that can mislead people for a few years and can take some probably not great experiences for them to realize that their full self is something that takes decades to explore anyway. And that's part of the fun of being, being human, I think. Absolutely. I feel distinctly privileged that that's absolutely the case for me. I understand what you're saying about containing multitudes and that we, you know, we are strangers to ourselves, certainly. But in terms of bringing the full range of emotion, perspectives, not having to mute how you speak, how you look, how you act, that's very meaningful to someone who has been told to work on accent reduction. Mm-hmm to dress differently, to assimilate in order to not stand out, but to stand out enough in a different way. And that's why I've been at Digitas for seven years. 1000% in my case, I certainly can only speak for myself. They take the good, the bad and the ugly. Obviously I am missing some filters. I'm a little rough (laughs) around the edges. They celebrate that. They think that's useful for certain clients. That's all to say, I agree that overarchingly, it's not true that most spaces will accommodate everything you are, but I have found a place where I don't have to be in pieces. Yeah. Yeah. My, my critique of some of the language and some of these concepts is that they're not wrong, they're just incomplete by themselves. So what you're experiencing and what you value in the idea of bringing your whole self to work, totally sign up for. But whole self means that like, if you're feeling angry in a meeting, then it's like, well, let's talk about that. Why are you angry? And I, I feel like there's a whole other part of the self which might be beyond identity and get into the things that are really emotional that if you're really going to bring your full self, it's, it's not just about how you identify and how you behave. It's about like all the emotions and the difficult stuff as well. That's all. So I think it's useful. Um, and you know what? I'd love to see environments that are like, you look really angry like, right now. Let's talk about it. Let's get it all out in the open as opposed to having to repress that part of ourselves as well. So useful, but in, potentially incomplete. Um, and I, I still remember when we first met how you expressed that sense of, for me, it was a sense of joy. I don't know if that's uh, an overreach of my own there, but a sense of joy and, and mixed with relief and elation in the fact that you found a workplace that does accept you and supports you. Absolutely. One of the most affirming things is looking at dismal strategy Twitter or any of the other places where people really share sad, dejected takes on the environments they're in or that they've left. I absolutely am joyful, 
privileged because it, you know, you don't know that in and of itself, you know, because life gets in the way. But whenever I hear from others, and because I'm not super steeped in advertising, I'm not surrounded by people talking shop. I'm not a fan of that. So I don't know how other places are. So when I get a glimpse, for example, in Sweathead or at your class or on Twitter, I am just reminded of what a serendipitous, amazing thing happened for me. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that that's true for anyone else in my organization. I don't know. But for me, 1000%, I feel so supported, seen, recognized, and invested in. And and that's a really powerful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And it's a thing that a lot of other people will experience in their careers. And it's the thing that I I hope more people get to experience in their careers. But, you know, after 10 years of of working in advertising, you're going to have a list of you know, I don't know what the number is, like 20 to 30 people that you've really got on with that have worked really well, maybe a few hundred where you didn't quite gel. Maybe there was some toxic slash abusive behavior as well. But within a decade, you're going to have a list of 20 to 30 people that you really got on with, even if you're a bit more of an isolated individual, as many strategy folk are. And that really should be celebrated because it's when you go through a stint of perhaps not great career decisions and environments that didn't respect you as an individual, didn't respect your department, maybe didn't respect your boss, if you're a strategist and you're like, oh, wow, I really did have a good five or six years ago. (laughs) Um, And these are things to absolutely celebrate. And so when I see you talk, write and and discuss the, the way that you feel about where you work and how you work, it is a beautiful thing and something that I honestly, I just wish it was the norm. Maybe Me it is too. the norm and maybe I'm making up all this, all this stuff, but yet you're getting questions from students about toxic environments and, and agencies uh, and their behavior. So, you know, do, do you think that what you're going through is the norm? No, it takes a certain kind of mindset, particularly in an enormous space to advocate for yourself and ensure that you are being served as much as you serve the organization. So I am extremely mindful of the value that I bring and ensure that it is recognized. And a lot of people, particularly women, have difficulty with that, have difficulty championing themselves, advocating for more, for better. Fortunately, I don't have to do a ton of it. Again, I think I have the trust and support of key decision makers But that's not the case for people who are uncomfortable negotiating, Mm -hmm. who have been taught to be deferential or to feel lucky that they have a job. For people who feel like they need to stay in their lane and it might cause waves to try to move within the organization or try something new. So I, I definitely do not believe that everybody has my experience, but I am enormously grateful that it is mine. Mm-hmm. You talked about not having a filter or not having much of a filter before. How do you experience that in the workplace? How do, how do you think other people experience it in the workplace? Are you conscious of what you say? Do the things slip out and you're like, oh, that might have been too much. Can I walk it back? Like, what's, what's that like? Listen. There's one person without a filter to another. I'm getting better. I have been working on it a little bit. You know, I'm in the South, but I'm from the Northeast. 
obviously. And the South is very different about how they like to receive information, how they want it communicated. Mm-hmm. I don't have time, right? Like, I completely believe in tact. I don't believe that truth needs to be hurtful or, you know, upsetting. But part of my spirit is I do just get to the point and I value people's time. I do not want to waste anyone's time. I want to give them the best and get moving. Yes. And a lot of people love a long, protracted experience and slides to get there. Yeah. Uh, so what's interesting is the Dutch are known for being very direct and there's certain language. I can't speak Dutch, so I don't know the language. And one of the reasons that they're direct is because they believe it's polite. Because of what you said, it saves people time, which is different to other places where to be direct means you're slapping someone in the face verbally and they don't like it because it affects their sense of self and their ego and their status. It's, I love that. It's, so, it's so interesting. I mean, did it take you a while to adapt? How long have you been in the South and, and how long did it take you to adapt? Do you think you fully adapted? I've been in the South since 2008, i.e. the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. I moved here from New York without any knowledge, friends, nothing. Just very much like with this podcast, just said yes to an opportunity without knowing much about it. Mm-hmm. And certainly had many preconceptions, was concerned about my safety. I would say I'm a very adaptable creature. For the first two weeks in Atlanta, I was mystified by strangers waving at me, greeting me. My immediate response is, what's your problem? What, <laughs> you know, like, what is yeah. going on? Why are you even addressing me? Yeah. Because that's just not how it is where I'm from. I, it did not take long at all for me to get into it. Wow. It really makes a difference when someone walks by you and shows you all their teeth and their eyes are smiling too. And it's free. It's free to share that on a sidewalk. And I love that. Mm-hmm. I certainly did not think the South was going to be for me. I have lived in different places, you know, Northeast, Miami, San Diego, South America. I have never felt rooted. I have never felt like I fit exactly. And of all places, Atlanta in the South, gave me such a sense of community and possibility. And I do want to be nicer and I do want to smile, not in a superficial, bless your heart way, but it's really beautiful for neighbors to stand on their porch and ask you how you're doing. It's really beautiful to have people acknowledge your presence instead of simply walking by you. That's really powerful. And that's actually really helped me understand this region and other things that come into play with my work. I've gotten to experience an entirely different culture. I thought the culture clash was going to be more severe. And again, my directness was a little bit of a hump in the beginning, but I think people also find it refreshing. That's probably the adjective that I get in response to things. And of course, with certain clients, I know how I need to couch things. 
But internally, I am very straight up. Usually it gets laughs, but occasionally, you know, there might be a little side conversation. Mm. Uh, Why haven't you ever felt rooted in a place? I feel like I'm visiting this planet. My parents are not from here. I was born in the United States, but had a lot of upbringing in Colombia, which is obviously very different. I learned English at the age of six. My household did not resemble that of any other family. No processed foods, eating tongue and chicken feet, speaking Spanish only. Where I grew up was actually a settlement place for refugees from the Khmer Rouge. So all Cambodian neighbors, we just kind of stood out. And I never felt like where I was born is where I'm from. New York is the closest. You know, my dad's a New Yorican. I spent so much time there. I lived there. I thought it was going to be everything. And it wasn't because it's just changed so radically and is no longer it's no longer the thing that I loved. It's still a great city, but it didn't give me what I, what I needed. And I've just, because I'm an introvert, I think I struggle with creating those relationships and bonds that make a place feel like home. And all of that went away when I moved here. There's an earnestness, vulnerability. I have found my people Without knowing a single person, I was embraced by the community. I felt like I belonged for the first time. And, and I don't even know what to attribute that to. I mean, there's certainly something in the air. I am in love with the tree canopy. Um, there are so many people from all over the world in this city because it, it is a city of transplants. What, what, what's interesting, I mean, Atlanta, is, is it the busiest? It's one of the busiest airports, I think, in the world. It's one of the busiest airports in the world. A lot of planes fly through there, a lot of military goes through there. And like a lot of uh, larger American cities or US cities, it's super spread out. Like I, I've been there a bunch of times and you know, there's not much of a downtown. It doesn't feel like there's a center of gravity. And so if you're used to like a center of gravity in a really big downtown, it can be quite confusing. Is it true that you've got to get into the neighborhoods to really find that sense of community? Um, you know, for someone who visits somewhere like Atlanta and sees it as a sprawling place that might be hard to wrap your head around initially, how does it work? And, and specifically, how does it work to provide you with this sense of, of place and community? So it absolutely does come down to neighborhoods and Atlanta there's Metro Atlanta and there's real Atlanta. Real Atlanta is only about 500,000 people. Greater Atlanta, Metro Atlanta is a lot more. I don't remember the number. One, I live in the epicenter. So I live in a highly walkable neighborhood. I didn't own a car for the first three years that I lived here. Simply not necessary. I could walk to everything. Everything's nearby very similar to how it was for me when I lived in Park Slope or Williamsburg. And that's the first part. One, there are these unique, distinct neighborhoods that have completely different flavors based on what you like, either the kind of people you like or the kind of architecture you like. And they all have their own mini culture. I know that sounds, well, I guess it's there's parallels with like little Italy or whatever, but without it being around an identity, 
it's all about certain amounts of blocks. And there's a, I would say it's the collaborative nature as an introvert, as a lone wolf, it is so energizing and simultaneously grounding to have complete strangers willing to help you. And that's a feeling you get in these communities. I do not go outside of the perimeter. You know, it's just saying like New York, people don't go to Brooklyn or something, right? It's, there's these lines in the sand we won't cross because I have everything I need where I am. All of the in-town neighborhoods are very historic. I walk by Martin Luther King's childhood home all the time. There is so much history, the civil rights movement, which started and continues here, is a prominent piece of the experience, be it landmarks, be it until recently running into John Lewis in the streets. It's like a small town, Atlanta proper, again, with all of the amenities and art and live music scene, tree canopy that you could wish for. That's beautiful to hear, Vanessa. It's quite a, a love letter to Atlanta. Congratulations, Atlanta. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, just a couple of last questions around what we started off talking about, especially for people trying to get into the industry nervous about the kinds of toxic behaviors that they might encounter in the industry and then how to deal with those toxic behaviors. What are the, what are the toxic behaviors that come most to mind when you're discussing this with uh, maybe people that you're interviewing for a job or, or even with students when, when you occasionally pop up at places like VCU Brand Center? They don't necessarily call them out. I would assume it is microaggressions. A lot of women have concerns about not getting credit for their work. Again, so sad to be considering that before even entering. Things around unsustainable hours, things around not respecting personal boundaries slash PTO, cultures that keep assholes around because they do good work. There is a growing concern about these people that sort of get away with being abusive because they've either been there a long time or because they win awards or what have you. So there's already an expectation that they're going to come up against those kinds of people. Again, so sad. I, I, I don't want people thinking that's the case, but to me and what I tell people is if it's a toxic person that can be dealt with, but a toxic culture environment cannot. It's, it's very different to extricate an individual that's cancerous and, and poisons, you know, emotions and spaces. But if the whole thing is rotten at the core, just don't bother. <laughs> just mm, yeah. don't bother. How can somebody do their best to work that out before they join a place? Contact people who currently work there or who recently left. Don't waste your time on Glassdoor. Don't go to Fishbowl either because that's a lot of angry people. But reach out to people. I have people reach out to me all the time who are considering joining Digitas, who ask me questions about culture and, you know, are they really like they say they are? And even my answer to that depends because every office is different. It's not a monolithic culture. 
Atlanta is very different from New York. It's very different from Boston and Chicago. I think the best thing, and particularly now that we have Slack channels and all these little groups, I feel like you can get a better pulse on the reality of cultures. A lot of, you know, black folks, women are creating circles where we can openly talk about the realities of certain agencies, you know, what you're going to be up against. So there's always a whisper network, uh, but I think it's a a little bit more standardized and has technology behind it. Okay. And then when you're talking to people coming into the industry who are hoping to be involved with and bring a sense of radical change to advertising, how do you, how do you feel about that energy? Do you feel like you want to encourage them and, and be a cheerleader to that energy? Do you feel that it's, it's, it would be wise to temper them a little? Like how, do you, how do you feel about that energy? I love the energy. I will always champion the energy while reminding them that they need to temper their expectations because the little bubbles we live in where we can be unapologetic and brazen and unfiltered don't necessarily exist in those spaces. And it's a matter of you deciding what matters to you. Can you compromise on that? Or is it not a big deal? So then what about someone who's listening to this, who manages people in an agency, who's also looking to recruit people into the agency and is undoubtedly going to encounter someone like the person you're talking about who wants to bring a sense of radical change to the industry? I mean, how would you counsel the hirer of that person? I have been that person. I think managers can make a very big difference in whether or not someone can spread those wings and pursue that. Different departments deal with things differently, obviously, and and some are better than others. But when you're hiring, I think, again, the energy is great, but there is a little bit of like, what's the word? It's not that people want to skip ahead. They just have this expectation that they're going to walk in and it's this progressive, diverse, incredible space, right? And it's, that's not the case, which is partly why I want to let them know that because we need them to show up, but also calm down. You can't come into an environment as an outsider that's already established and come in and usurp the way things are done. It's, it's a fine ambition to have, but you certainly need to, as with any human endeavor, watch, listen, see what the dynamics are, how does this place work? Who are the power holders? Who would need to be swayed to influence changing the way things are done? But you can't come in like a bull in a china shop. That always blows up. That always blows up. So there's a little bit of easing into it to some degree. Um, but I always recommend that people, before they try to put the big flag in the ground about I'm here, hear me roar, watch the natives, see how they operate. It's, it's anthropology, right? Totally. And I think if people are managing some of this, this sort of fire, I guess, you can manage it in really gentle ways. Sometimes it's no more complicated than two things, two things that come to mind for me at least. One is just letting people know that they're safe as they are. Uh, and then two is just gently encouraging or pointing out the behaviors that you like. So if someone 
for example, creates a presentation and there's a couple of slides that are really fiery and you're like, yeah, just saying that was good to do that again. Just that gentle little compliment there allows them to know that they're safe and that you want more of it. And so encouraging it uh, in, in, a, in a specific way can give that fire a, a direction that, that, is, that is beautiful rather than turning it all into a battle. It's sort of fi- finding the thing inside that fiery behavior that you want to nurture and then just gently nurturing it. It's, um, it's doable. I, I don't think we've always got the tools for it or we're looking for something that's like a, like a big interaction or a big tool or technique, but sometimes it's just like, hey, you know that thing you did on slide three last time? Do that again. That was cool. And that's it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's those gentle managerial slash coaching behaviors that can be deeply powerful. And over a few years of working with someone, uh, you can really help magnify what someone's about, which is hopefully what you've hired them for in the first place. Do you have any little coaching techniques? I feel, I feel embarrassed to actually call what I just said coaching techniques, but do you have any coaching <laughs> techniques that you find yourself using? I, first of all, definitely try to provide safety to my direct reports. Once again, the filter is not there. So I am very protective and blunt about taking those risks. I will protect you. They need to know someone has their back. I don't want you turning up what was asked. I don't want you giving me what was asked. I want you to bring something else. And people are afraid to do that if they think you're going to say, but what about that other thing? So I definitely let my direct reports know I have their back. I will fight for them. I will fight for their ideas. You can start to tell what someone's passion point slash really strong point is and offer them more opportunities to do that. Just to your point about, hey, slide three was fiery. Let's do more of that. It is about harnessing that. You don't want someone coming in blazing and then burning out. And that was that. You want to nurture it while making sure they stay employed. But I really do think managers have such a huge role in employee happiness and whether they stick around, like more than anything else. Yeah, they do. And I I feel honestly that HR over engineers this stuff as a way to overcompensate for the lack of management that HR people I've spoken to, they're like, most people don't know how to manage. I, I really believe, especially for the work that we do and the types of people, the types of personalities that we bring in or that we want to bring in, that it's just a matter of pointing out a couple of the things that they do that you want more of and gently doing that over time. I think that's more useful than the whole stop, start, continue stuff, 360 degree feedback. And I know a lot of people who study this would probably disagree with me. It's just that our work is immediately emotional. And we can pretend it's not. We can pretend that we're just doing it in service of a client. But most people who do this work, who aren't just about numbers, which is to say most people who do this work, they're tapping into how they feel about something and they're using that to try to get to some kind of new point of view, some unusual way of being, which is what it is to be creative and to bring something new into the world. And so just to say, hey, that third slide, do that again. Or I appreciate how you did those two things in that workshop that you ran last time, do that again. I I feel like that gentle, I'll call it breadcrumbing, that gentle Mm. breadcrumbing is way more powerful than we need to have a one-on-one meeting and I'm going to go through all the things that people have given me feedback on, stop, start, continue. I really can't stand that nonsense. But do you have a as someone who's unfiltered, do you have a point of view on the HR machinations around these things? 
that that excessive for me. Uh, see, I'm leading you with my question, but, but that that real structured approach to to feedback and managing people, as opposed to being in the moment and looking for you know teachable moments, and do that again, that gentle stuff. I'm not going to discredit the 360 in its entirety because I think it's valuable to get perspectives from people you worked with in a specific capacity, a different account. You need to see all those layers. However, ongoing coaching, ongoing conversations is infinitely more valuable than anything we're going to input into a tool. I have weekly one-on-ones with my reports, not to go over things to do, but what was a win this week? Like, what are you excited about? What, you know, what did you crush? And they share work with me, right? As strategists, we don't always get to see what anyone else is working on because we're on our own and you're never paired with someone or, or it's very rare. So having them show me their work, letting them know that they can go there is super important, but the one-on-ones is the best way, or even in the moment. That's the other thing I try to do because people forget. If you don't tell someone in the moment what they could have done better or what they did great, two weeks later, it's not as meaningful or they might not even remember. So it really is about that just ongoing reinforcement of breadcrumbing. That's a great term to let them know gradually, you know, over time, what they can work on. And it's not some big surprise the end of the year where people only share what they most recently remember about you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an unfair perspective. It's not real. It's however these people are feeling in the moment. So I think managers have a duty Like, hey, it's 25% of your job to be letting people know what they're great at and developing them and pushing them. Hmm. Yeah. And part of that, which is part of the techniques I think we're both talking about here, is helping the person articulate what they think they're good at. Because what you're referencing there by asking someone, tell me about a win this week. That's something that's really powerful in, in psychology and elite athletes use that. They're like, remember that time that I scored the final points in the game and I'm going to access that memory from a few years ago now because now I need to go and do the same thing. So building up this bank of, of positive memories is not to do so in a way of coddling a person. It's that it's very powerful psychologically to help them understand themselves and to retrieve that memory. So they're like, I remember when I went into a pitch and I was feeling nervous and I did a, a perform great. And here's the routine I went through beforehand. Here's how I felt in the moment. I'm now going to try to tap into that again, as opposed to, you know, here's a list of 20 things that people have given you feedback about from all the pitches that you've done in an, in a, in a potentially, uh, not constructive and negative way that can really affect someone for a very, very long time. And so, yeah, I look, I, I love all these techniques. Um, when you talk to the students at VCU Brand Center and, and dropped your truth bombs on them, <laughs> was there one that you felt the most excited but possibly, you know, confused or guilty about at the same time? That it existed or that you thought it and or that you said it to them? Oh, damn. So now that I've watched the video, <laughs> now that I've watched it, I realize. I was extremely candid about my organization. 
So that's a thing because I wanted people to know people, basically they jumped to the conclusion that Digitas must be this extremely progressive agency because holy moly, this person works there. <laughs> and I had to disabuse them of that notion because again, it just depends on who's supporting you, what department you're in, what city it's very individual. There is no sweeping way of doing things. And I wanted to let them know I have it great. So do other people. That doesn't mean that we're not having to push them to think differently or do things differently. But what I love about Digitas is that they're receptive to that. You know, like I can say this is not working and we are going to have a conversation about it and try to figure it out. So when I watched the video, I was like, oh man, I was way too candid, which I'm probably doing right now as well, because I'm simply reiterating what I said. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't like to give false promises. So I, I'm not going to tell someone, hey, come work here anywhere. It's going to be amazing. I don't know that. I can speak to certain departments. I can speak to my office, which is the bomb, but it's not a monolith, right? So yeah, totally true. Yeah. You get these little pockets through your career, pockets of a team, account team, creative team, other agencies you work with and client and, and it's beautiful. And then you could have pockets happening at the same time. I don't know what's with this pocket thing, but you can have a good pocket going on is what I'm saying. And at the same time, you could be in situations on the same day in the same week that are not great, that the pockets are just not that great to be in. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Vanessa, where can people find you on the internet? Where are you most active? Probably Instagram. I'm on Twitter, but it's political season, so not as much. And I'm on LinkedIn talking a lot right now. I don't know why. But my handle on Twitter and Instagram is Frida's Brow. Beautiful. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate that we talked about the dark side of the industry. Uh, while also getting to hear your love letter to Atlanta. It's a beautiful thing. And I guess it points to this weird conflict that can happen in our, in our careers in that you need to be aware of some of the bad behavior and you might even contribute to some of the bad behavior, but you do have these phases in certain places for certain years with certain people that are really, really beautiful and worth cherishing and telling other people about because those, those, phases and those people and that sense of community, it is out there. It's, it's available to you. It's not all dark, but the darkness comes with it as well. So thank you for it's, being here on Sweater today. It's just like life. The darkness comes with it as well. Thank you so much for having me. Do a good job on the edits. <laughs> no worries. Peace. <laughs>